Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today we're interviewing Professor Keith Muir, who is Synapse Chair of Clinical Imaging and a consultant neurologist at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. And his main research interests are brain imaging in acute stroke, perfusion CTs and stem cell treatments. So thank you very much for coming today. And I thought I would start with uh, the topic of thrombolysis in stroke. There seems to have been certainly a little bit of scepticism that has entered into the medical world, um, often from people outside of the stroke community, in fact. Um, some people who have analysed the data and have questioned some of the, the, the methodology and the, the, the validity of the research um, and, and have questioned whether there is truly a significant benefit versus the risks involved in thrombolysis. So I just wanted to start by asking you, do you think it's fair that some people have had some scepticism around thrombolysis? And if not, what would you say to the cynics? It's always appropriate to be sceptical about any new treatment. But I think the situation with thrombolysis for stroke is somewhat unfair and doesn't always understand the condition or the trial data properly. Within the stroke world, there's certainly no doubt whatsoever regarding the efficacy of treatment and the aggregate data from individual patient data meta-analysis very clearly illustrates the risk-benefit balance that that we all accept. I think it's only arisen as an issue in certain emergency department services globally where they, they perhaps had a different involvement with acute stroke management compared with what would be normal within the UK so I think some of the scepticism centres around the perceived benefit of the treatment. And in my understanding is there have been 13 major clinical trials and only two showed a, a really positive favourable outcome and the rest seem to show either no um, positive outcome or a tendency towards a negative outcome. So I was just wondering what your interpretation of this was and how the stroke community as a whole interprets it so differently from the cynics. All of the trials have been modest in size by comparison with what has been evident in other things like cardiology. But that's a consequence of stroke being a much more varied pathology and the effect sizes that we're dealing with being very different from what's typically seen in a cardiology study. So it has become progressively more and more difficult to justify very large-scale trials in the face of evidence of efficacy. There's also a very strong time dependence for benefit. So whereas there's still evidence for benefit many hours after onset of symptoms in a cardiac trial, we're dealing with efficacy that disappears within the space of a very few hours. And the time dependence of treatment is a distorting factor if you simply look at the headline results of individual clinical trials. So the NINS trial that gave us the first clear evidence of efficacy and was the basis for licensing in North America, had a nominal time window of three hours, which was revolutionary at the time. We were still commonly conducting trials with time windows of eight, 12 hours or longer. But the NINS trial recognized that from animal model data, we had a very short time to intervene, set a three hour window, which seems an extraordinarily high hurdle at the time, and additionally required that sites could only recruit in the 91 to 180 minute time window if they had also recruited a patient in the 0 to 90 time window, which gave this 
feature unique to that trial of having half of its recruitment within the first 90 minutes after onset and the other half in the 91 to 180 minutes. And because the effect is so strongly front-loaded into that very early time point, that trial was the one that showed an effect. Trials that were run at about the same time, the ECAS-1 trial being one of them, a subsequent ECAS-2, each had six-hour time windows but had an average time to treat the patients of somewhere closer to four to four and a half hours. And out at that time point, you're dealing with a much, much smaller effect size. So it's almost inevitable that you end up with, with just taking the superficial headline results of individual trials, missing what is the effect that only really emerges when you look at the individual patient data in aggregate. And the individual patient data meta-analyses are the ones that really illustrate the shifting risk-benefit balance over time, which otherwise is is easily lost in the fog of individual trial data. So based on the studies that we have, do you feel that we require any further research into the efficacy and suitability of thrombolysis, or do we have enough? The further research that's needed is into improving elements of treatment, such as do we have the best agent, do we have the best dose, do we have the need for combination therapies but in terms of is it ethical to do a further trial comparing against the placebo I think the unequivocal answer from the stroke community would be no this is not not something that should or could be done. Do you think thrombolysis has a long future ahead of it when we consider other options um, that are potentially in the in the near future such as thrombectomy? Thrombolysis is the future and and will remain the future for a large part of the population. Thrombectomy is very exciting, but we should not lose sight of the fact that 90% of all the clinical trial data on thrombectomy are in patients already treated with thrombolysis. For most places in the world, thrombectomy is a distant dream. There is no chance of accessing an expert service within the timescale that's required. Therefore, thrombolysis is the only option that's likely to be there for the majority of people worldwide. What we do need to do is access thrombolysis more quickly, and we have, all of us, considerable amounts of work to do to optimise the onset to treatment time, which is the, the single biggest factor in determining potential benefit from treatment. We do have a, a need to look into other drugs. We're in the process of running a trial comparing tenecteplase with alteplase with various pharmacological advantages, including much higher fibrin specificity, therefore potentially more specific action on on the clot that's happened acutely with potentially better recanalization rates, therefore better clinical efficacy and better safety because minimizing risk is clearly required as well. So I think the the exploration of novel thrombolytic therapies is ongoing. And within that, we're extending potentially to groups who are currently excluded for reasons that may be remediable. So quite apart from the safety subgroup concerns that we've mentioned, there's a big cohort of patients who wake with a deficit in whom there is no defined time of onset. And we now believe for various strongly supported reasons that brain imaging will give us good guidance as to what the actual time of onset might be. Thrombolytic drug therapy, again, is a practical undertaking for that group of patients, particularly for the majority of the world where endovascular treatment isn't an option. Uh, And therefore, trials like the wake-up trial, 
the forthcoming um, TWIST trial, which is a Norwegian trial looking at Tenect, please, of trying to advance thrombolytic drug therapy into these groups of patients based on imaging selection. So we're starting to see trials extending the use of different thrombolytic agents and exploring the possibility of better thrombolytic agents. I think we may already have discarded several superior ones like desmotoplase through, with hindsight, trial design that hasn't been all it could have been. I suspect it will be quite hard to lay to rest uh, the scepticism surrounding thrombolysis, but would it be fair to say, in your opinion, that there seems to be a lot of unnecessary concern around thrombolysis, and in fact, the people that actually deliver the treatment and, I guess, take care of the consequences that may or may not arise are actually satisfied with it? Yes. I mean, we we do appreciate there's a risk-benefit balance. There are very few treatments in medicine that come without side effects, and the brain is a pretty delicate organ. But I think the principle is very clear. We have good data from animal models that say opening an artery that's blocked is generally a good thing. We have good observational data from clinical studies that say an artery that opens is a good thing. We have clear evidence that thrombolytic drugs open arteries. And we have clear evidence now from thrombectomy that opening arteries in other ways is beneficial. So the the fact that there is a small risk of intracerebral hemorrhage shouldn't shouldn't deter us and distract us from the fact that that we have a colossal volume of evidence that says opening an artery if it's blocked is generally quite a good thing. So perhaps we could uh, talk a little bit about thrombectomy if that's okay. I'm sure we've all heard little bits and pieces about it but uh, perhaps aren't as familiar um, to what it actually will entail. So if you don't mind just giving us a little bit of the basics, what relevance it may have to emergency physicians and how far away you believe it is from being a, a more widely available uh, treatment. Thrombectomy was investigated uh, since the mid-2000s as devices have been developed to try and extract clot from intracranial vessels. And that's had an impetus because we recognise that predictably thrombolytic drugs are least effective in the patients with the most severe strokes. So if you have a very large clot in a main artery, the internal carotid intracranial portion or the proximal middle cerebral artery, we know that your rates of recanalizing these vessels with intravenous therapy alone are poor, probably less than 1 in 10 for the internal ICA occlusions and about 1 in 4 for the proximal middle cerebral occlusions. So we have a, a treatment that works but not very well it's inevitable, a big amount of clot is not digested away by a, essentially a, an enzymatic treatment uh, in sufficient time to save worthwhile amounts of tissue. Uh, and that is unfortunately happening in the patients with the most severe outcomes. So the big imp- impetus for developing alternative treatments. And that led initially to a generation of devices which included the Mercy device, a little corkscrew that was designed to try and go around a clot and pull it out. Uh, And that showed some evidence that this was opening arteries more successfully, more frequently, but without any evidence from clinical studies to suggest this was benefiting patients significantly. So clinical trials followed. We've had eight in total which have reported randomised controlled trials, mostly based around single countries. Uh, PEAST was the trial that we led in the UK, but the Dutch were the first to get there in late 2014 with a trial called Mr Clean, which was a trial comparing best medical care, most 
of the patients receiving intravenous thrombolysis as part of that with the best medical care and additional thrombectomy in patients with a large vessel occlusion in the head. And it showed very decisively that they had a substantially improved outcome with thrombectomy being given in addition. All of the subsequent trials that were still ongoing at the time were discontinued after the Data and Safety Monitoring Committees paused for review in light of the Mr. Clean results, and the interim analysis essentially confirmed that all of the other trials, even some that were very small, showed such substantial benefit that it was unjustifiable to continue randomising. So by the end of April or May of 2015, all of these trials had discontinued. Now, the aggregate data from all of these trials has been assembled as part of what's called the the Hermes collaboration, which incorporates the seven trials that have used predominantly stent retriever technology, which is essentially a a stent which is expanded round about the clot in the intracranial vessel, but then collapsed and extracted with the clot usually being snared in in the device. Uh, And those seven trials represent the best aggregate data, about 1,700 patients' worth of data, Um, to illustrate the effectiveness of thrombectomy in the range of patients for whom it's effective. So how far are we away from it being widely available in the NHS? It is available, but not in a uniform or round-the-clock fashion. So it's currently approved and recommended for use in England. Uh, There is a commissioning process that's been set up and there are several services that are already up and running. St George's in southwest London is the one that has been there ahead of the pack and has been offering round-the-clock from Bectomy over the last 12 months or so. We are various stages behind that in every other part of the country, but there have been very uh, successful services in other places, including Belfast and Bristol, where they've had local interests. And in other territories, this is developing uh, as as possible. A large part of the barrier is insufficient numbers of people trained to undertake the procedure. There are only about 90 trained neurointerventionalists in the UK and we estimate somewhere in the region of minimum 9,000 patients per year for whom this would be indicated, potentially far more based on some of the recent trial data that we've had. So we have a big need to train people and that isn't a short-term exercise and so far has not been accompanied by any intention politically to train more people to provide this. Added to that, there's a big need to train other staff and also to improve our diagnostic neuroradiology capacity because selecting the right patients depends on a level of interpretation of diagnostic imaging, which is beyond what would be current standard of care for most hospitals. So CT brain scans alone are not adequate. You need a CT angiogram, and you probably need to interpret the CT angiogram to look at things like collateral status or undertake additional perfusion imaging of the brain, which are not difficult to do, but do require additional training and additional capacity. Added to that, we then have the issues of system organisation about how to transfer the right patients to the right centre. So if we have 29 neuroscience centres across the UK, we have a major undertaking to get all of our patients who may benefit to those centres and do so very quickly because the one thing that's very clear from the combined data from all of the thrombectomy trials is that we don't really have more time to play with. 
you think the thrombolysis window of four and a half hours is very tight, but it's not different for thrombectomy. So fundamentally, if you're taking all comers with a blocked major vessel, we are needing to start reperfusing the brain, probably finish reperfusing it in the five to six hour window. The recent trials that have come out, one just published in the, the last week, but presented initially in May was the Dawn trial. And that illustrates a, a likely way forward, which will extend the usage. And that was based on selecting patients where the onset time wasn't clearly known, using brain imaging to identify people who had a substantial volume of still salvageable brain tissue uh, and taking them, regardless of time, to the cath lab to undertake a thrombectomy procedure with about 90% of the patients in that trial having a what's termed a wake-up stroke. And Dawn showed, again, very substantial benefit, which led to early termination of the trial uh, on interim review. So Dawn may well further emphasise the need for more sophisticated diagnostic imaging and significantly extend the number of patients for whom we should be considering this treatment. What we don't yet know is how many patients were screened in order to identify the 200 or so participants in the Dawn trial. Uh, it may be a small proportion of the patients that we see. It may alternatively be quite a large proportion of the patients that we see, and that's not something we currently know terribly well. But worldwide, this is a big challenge for everybody, uh, and even in centres where they've got a well-established cohort of neurointerventionalists available, there are still major issues about systems organisation to ensure that the right patient gets quickly to the appropriate centre and doesn't linger at an intermediate location because that's a recipe for slow treatment which exactly as for thrombolysis leads to a much smaller effect, much smaller benefit. So what do you believe is the future of stroke? What, what should we expect in the next five or ten years? We need to get faster at doing things that we need to do to reperfuse the brain. We need to have more effective treatments and we need to have safer treatments. And that's going to be a combination of thrombolytic drugs, thrombectomy, but much better patient selection using smarter brain imaging, which we, we are needing to expand across many more centres. I think we're going to see increasing numbers of, of other interventions that we can employ as well. And the studies that are going on at the present time include all manner of different ways of enhancing thrombolysis, avoiding complications. We've got big issues round about management of hyperglycemia. We've got quite a number of, of other areas that we need to improve upon. So I think all of that will change and that will change the systems of care to try and maximise the the amount of the number of patients that can reach an appropriate centre as fast as possible. It's happening quite well in certain places. Ireland's doing pretty well with this at the moment. Scotland some way behind just now and we've got geographical challenges and logistical challenges which are going to be quite significant to try and ensure that we have reasonable equity of access but much like cardiology and PCI it's not going to be possible to provide that for the entire population around the clock. We're going to have to maximise the benefit for the greatest number of patients. So I think we're going to see significant systems change which will try to facilitate appropriate access as fast as possible for the majority of patients. For stroke prevention, 
we need to change our thinking around about TIA management. We, we've had a traditional approach, which is outpatient focused, built around the premise that outpatient clinics were all you needed because this was a fairly slow moving condition with rather modest risk of stroke in the future, all of which was dead wrong. And now we've recognized that TIA actually is an extremely high risk situation, which requires fairly intensive input very quickly if you're going to avoid strokes, but pretty good information that tells us that we can do that even within existing technologies. But we do need to see the patients quickly, get them imaged quickly, triage them into an appropriate risk category and start appropriate treatment. And I think we need to move away from the outpatient-based thinking process because you really can't design an outpatient system that can see all patients with a potential TIA and start treatment and investigate them within 24 hours of the event, ideally quicker. So we need to do things in a different way if we're going to deal with the TIA side. So I think the, the future is very bright. We have a huge amount of evidence. We have a huge amount of clinical research. We have a lot of ongoing trials, and I think we're going to see incremental benefits for patients over the coming years as we, we implement all of these new bits of evidence. So we put out a request for questions from our listeners, uh, and if you don't mind, I was going to run through a few of those. Um, the first one is from Jenny Lochran, and she asks, what are your thoughts on CTs in ambulances, and do you think this is a viable option in the UK? It's an, a strategy to minimise door-to-needle time, and it seems to be able to do that, although whether it's the provision of the CT or certain other things that were done different in these trials isn't entirely clear. Uh, but it, it just emphasises the potential gains if you could properly prioritise transfer of the appropriate patient. So the, the trials that have been done, uh, the Berlin study in particular, uh, didn't only put the CT in the back of a truck, they put a doctor in the back of the truck with it, and they put a point-of-care coagulation tester into the back of the truck. So they did several things differently and substantially lowered their onset treatment time. The downside is that it's quite an expensive facility to run, and in a very busy environment where you have multiple patients being referred, very hard to imagine that you could have one truck covering an urban area. You'd need multiple trucks. I don't know how you pay for that or staff it. Other places that have tried to do this have found that they get a very substantial proportion of stroke mimics and non-stroke diagnoses that the trucks are called for, and triaging calls to go to the appropriate place is an extremely difficult thing to organise. So the CT, the scan in the van, as we've, we've referred it to it, uh, is not an easy answer in most healthcare systems. It's a fairly attractive flagship if you're running a competitive hospital in the United States where your competitors are all trying to get one advantage over another to see why you should go to their stroke system rather than somebody else's. Not certain that it's going to catch on as being a universally useful intervention across most European countries. Mark Whitcomb asks, if TIAs last up to 24 hours, then how many are we thrombolizing? Or do we need to redefine TIA in view of current practice? It's an old chestnut, uh, and it's a historical one. So the TIA definition goes back many years to, to really the 1960s. And the 24-hour definition, of course, is an arbitrary figure. The problem with changing it is that then you have to throw out all of your historical information. Uh, and there have been attempts, such as proposals in America, to redefine TIA on the basis of transient symptoms 
and absence of imaging changes on diffusion-weighted MRI. But that immediately invalidates all research done in clinical services that don't have access to MRI. And for most of the world, that's completely excluding them from any data. So redefining it retrospectively is problematic. How many TIAs do we thrombolize? Very few is the short answer. If you if you want to just think about the natural history, because very few of those who were eligible for the clinical trials looking at thrombolysis versus control, very few in the control group were free of symptoms at 24 hours. So if you select patients who have a significant clinical deficit that's been there for uh, amount of time that it's taken them to get to hospital within the three or six hour window or four and a half hour window, hardly any of those patients have made a full recovery by 24 hours. So we're not routinely selecting patients who are likely to make a full recovery. If you start applying imaging criteria, yes, you can improve on that. Uh, and there are certainly clinical trials we're currently undertaking where we, we are looking at a slightly more informed way at patients who have symptoms that fluctuate as is common in the early hours after stroke so you may get complete resolution only to deteriorate later Uh, and many of these patients can be identified because they've got intracranial arterial occlusion or other identifiable imaging features so there are trials going on randomizing these patients to thrombolytic therapy or not but in general no TIA is usually something which comes and goes within a matter of minutes maybe a few hours at most, but it is rare for patients who have a significant clinical deficit to resolve spontaneously and completely if you just wait. And finally, Paul Watson asks, what is your opinion on the various forms of imaging for stroke? And if you had to choose one, which one would it be? You need a range of imaging available to you because the right imaging depends on the clinical problem. If if our decision is is this stroke or not stroke in somebody with fairly minor symptoms, which is coming down essentially to a question of what's the appropriate secondary prevention strategy here, then MRI is superior to CT without any question. There are several stroke services, many stroke services worldwide that have a direct access to MRI as an emergency um, modality for imaging and it works very successfully. We don't routinely provide that. Indeed, it's quite difficult to access MRI in most UK centres within a reasonable timescale. But that would make a big difference both in terms of costs and in accuracy of diagnosis for that group. For those who've got a significant disabling stroke, you need a CT scan. You usually need a CT angiogram. And ideally, I think you need a CT perfusion scan. So you need smarter imaging to be done there. If you're dealing with the TIA population exclusively, we know that vascular imaging is key and predicts risk very powerfully as well. So how you develop that, I think you need to also consider. I think CT angiography is superior, very significantly superior to other modalities. I don't personally think Doppler ultrasound is a very good one. It's difficult to validate. It requires a lot of training and quality assurance work. And it only images the crusted bifurcation effectively. So you ignore the aortic arch, you ignore the intracranial vessels, you ignore the vertebrals very commonly, and you don't get any idea of intracranial vascular anatomy, which is only conforming to a textbook description in about half of the people out there. So we, we very regularly see people's posterior cerebral arteries derived from the carotid system, and it makes a nonsense of any 
neurological pronouncements about what's an anterior circulation versus a posterior circulation event. That might apply to half the people in the room, but it doesn't apply to the other half. So you need an imaging modality that actually shows you the whole of the vascular tree from the aortic arch to the top of the head. And whether you do that with CT angiography or MR angiography, you need some form of vascular imaging in the patients with TIA as well. So, Professor Muir, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to discuss the acute management of stroke with you. I just wondered, was there any final comments you would like to leave us with? Stroke's a medical emergency, and it's one of the ones with the shortest timescale. We're all in the game of trying to minimise the disability for our patients, and that requires multidisciplinary working to minimise all of the timescales between getting onset of symptoms to getting a treatment decision. And we should stop fretting about thrombolysis? Absolutely stop fretting about thrombolysis. Leave the decision-making to those in the stroke world who have to fret about it, but don't fret about the, the proof of the principle. We know this is an effective treatment. We have many difficult decisions to make round about for whom, uh, but the principle of whether this is a good thing in general, is not at issue. Professor Muir, thank you very much. You're welcome. So many thanks for listening, uh, and a huge thank you again to Professor Muir for his time. I think my main take-home points from this are that the stroke community as a whole are extremely satisfied with uh, with thrombolysis and are somewhat perplexed by all the scepticism surrounding it. I think they don't doubt that there is some risks, but I think all future research now is going to go into um, refining the correct agent to use, the correct dose to use, and how we can deliver it more quickly, and as well as um, further research into imaging Uh, such as perfusion scanning, to help us better identify the correct patients uh, to deliver thrombolysis to. In terms of thrombectomy, it's very exciting, it's coming, but I think on the whole it's going to be uh, confined to specialist centres. So I think um, before we get over all the logistical hurdles, I think thrombolysis is still going to be the future for the majority of, of stroke patients, certainly in the UK. And finally, in terms of TIAs, I think we're increasingly identifying these as high-risk events. And I think we're trying to investigate and treat these earlier and earlier to prevent strokes. And I think the old definition of TIAs as resolving within 24 hours is indeed old. And I think the stroke community would consider TIAs as generally resolving within a matter of a few minutes or up to a few hours at most. So by the time people are receiving thrombolysis, the vast majority have already resolved. So we're probably thrombolizing a lot less than we think. And in fact, I think the data shows that the majority of people who are thrombolized still have symptoms at 24 hours. So I think even by the old definition, um, we're not thrombolizing that many. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please visit stmungos-ed.com for the show notes where there's uh, links to further information regarding strokes. And there's also an opportunity to leave comments and there's lots more additional educational resources for your enjoyment. Thank you very much for listening and take care.